the innovation and who really cracks Web3 is going to be, for lack of a better word, the nobody or the people that are totally disengaged, not attached to any of the baggage that the AAA companies hold. Because everybody thinks that all the AAA companies are the devil, period, right? There's no way of talking around that. Everybody is always going to assume that. That's why nobody in AAA gaming figured out mobile, figured out free-to-play for the longest time. Welcome to the Will and Lee Show. Hey guys, I'm Will Chang, and I'm with my co-hosts, Lee Chang and Andrew. Hey, hey how's it going, Will? What's up? Hey, how's it going? We are at a pivotal moment in time where a lot of our friends are leaving the proper tech world to join Web3, where people are making billions and billions of dollars off of selling Board Ape Yacht Club NFTs <laughs> and other crazy ass shit. Hi, this is Will Chang, and that was David Duong. And we also have another friend of the podcast, Howie Zhang, with us. David Duong runs monetization for Apex Legends. He and his team has helped make Apex Legends $1.6 billion selling digital goods. Howie Zhang is a game economy designer for Guild of Guardians Immutable X game. Both of them have recently been really into Web3 and NFTs and gaming. And we're bringing them on to have a conversation about Web3 and gaming. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Good to be here again. <laughs> Let's get started. Howie, you brought some subjects that we wanted to go over. Why don't you bring up something and then we can just start the conversation from there. I can talk a little bit about sort of my brief journey in the last six or eight weeks since we chatted last. Because I think six and eight weeks doesn't sound like much and it was sort of over the Christmas break. So there was a bit of a break at my company and then I got COVID. So that set me back a little bit. I've come away from those, these six weeks and I just felt like I've been learning so much. And I guess at the outset, I'm just going to make a disclaimer here that everything that we're going to talk about in this podcast is opinions only. And they're not representative of the company that I work for, Immutable, or necessarily the project that I'm working on, which is Unguilded Guardians. And I say that because some of our community members have discovered the podcast and it's been shared within the Discord chat. So I just want to make it clear that this is just all speculation and we're just doing this all in um, good faith, I guess. <laughs> Everything Howie said for me as well. Yeah. I'm going to consider this a safe space. Yeah, especially given that intro. <laughs> <laughs> David, you probably have those same concerns, right? Like where, I know we've chatted about this personally, where it's like, maybe it segues into that first conversation about mainstream gaming and sort of the community interactions that developers have with the mainstream gamers. Yeah, I guess to kick it off, we talked about this a little bit last time. Hear your thoughts as well on this, Howie, but man, I just don't feel like with the mainstream gaming audience and with AAA gaming, that this is anything, adoption for Web3 and NFTs and having unique items isn't necessarily going to be something that picks up quick just because everybody, well, one, we already talked about the user experience being terrible, but two, when players perceive this happening in AAA games, all they see is the quote unquote cash grab that is happening. And so when Ubisoft made their announcement a while back saying, we're going to look into this and do blockchain gaming stuff. Everybody just moaned and groaned about it. And then whenever, sometime later, when they're like, surprise, Ubisoft courts, you're going to be able to earn these things and do that. Everybody was like, oh, hell no. Nah. So there's like an extension that you can look at actually for YouTube videos. And I think this was one of the most downvoted videos 
ever for Ubisoft when this all went down. There's definitely skepticism from everybody in AAA gaming just because everybody thinks this is a cash grab for the corporation. And this goes back to something that we had talked about like in the thread, right? This misalignment in terms of values or at least the perception of values of companies, if anything, where the player sees one thing and a a specific expectation of a brand that is misaligned with everything that Web3 stands for right now with the community, right? This is all about community, value being given to the community, them having rights to dictate the roadmap and governance around games. People don't just want a cheap way of doing it, right? And in addition to just it being like Ubisoft and Quartz, I I think that the way that they did it was not so good. Like, okay, you're going to give a limited amount of these items that are super hard to grind for, to have the opportunity to get. And the only thing that is making them unique from games that you would otherwise already be creating in your game is a serialized number on the, the good and a transaction history that goes along with it. Big whoop. No one cares if you get a serial number on a thing and I know some random Asian dude used to own this thing. They care if it's like, oh, LeBron used to own this thing, but not like some random transaction history of the of the item, right? I think they just like tried to go to market super fast. It just didn't feel good to the community and the items weren't that compelling. And so it was just met with a lot of backlash. Yeah, I completely agree with you, David. It was almost like in December of 2021, it was a foregone conclusion that all gamers would enthusiastically embrace NFTs and be prepared to spend so much more on NFT loot boxes compared to your regular loot boxes. And that was just like a default assumption. No one really challenged that as an idea. And then basically, I think when the AAA publishers started to test the waters and announce this, they got these pretty negative reactions. And I think part of that is the community and the the AAA mainstream gaming audience is maybe so jaded by the commercial aspects of how monetization currently works in free-to-play games that they just saw that as cynically, oh, it's just another cash grab. It's just another means of marketing and trying to convince us to, to spend even more money on the existing IAPs. Microtransactions already have a little bit of a negative sentiment in, in the community. Players still spend heaps of money on it. But like if you hard-pressed to, I think, survey a gaming audience and and get them to actually you know react positively to the concept of microtransactions. Everybody theoretically wants all the content for free. <laughs> and I want to sort of be a bit diplomatic in my words, but basically content costs something to produce. And if you want reoccurring content, there needs to be some monetization. And I think that goes again into the heart of what does Web3 Gaming do? Does it provide an alternative method of monetization that is more palatable to gamers? If so, I don't think just doing loot boxes with NFTs is the road you go on. It's something different. And one of the things I realized is when I just started this role, I had massive imposter syndrome. I didn't think I knew what I was doing. But within a couple of weeks, I realized that no one else really knew exactly what they were doing either. And so that imposter syndrome a little bit dissipated in the sense that it wasn't so much that, oh, I've learned so much that I'm no longer an imposter. It's more like, oh, this is genuinely new, unexplored territories and everyone's figuring it out. Everyone's trying to figure it out. If whoever can learn the quickest and figure it out and iterate to some model that is palatable is one that's going to succeed. Now, I hope that it's going to be our project and our game, but you know, like you got to stay at the forefront. You got to immerse yourself in other communities to try find out what it is that makes things tick for other communities and other projects. And then it's a collective learning experience because I think one of the things is you look back in five years time, right? Or three years time. And let's say Web3 Gaming takes off. You'll be able to see in three years time, look back to it and say, these were the critical ingredients you needed in a successful Web3 game. 
right? And you'll be, you'll be so obvious in maybe three years' time what those ingredients were. But as it currently stands today, no one really knows what those ingredients are. I have started to form some like hypothesis and sort of ideas around what are the things that just differentiate it. And I'm hoping that today we can chat about these things and explore and maybe instead of being so ambiguous through this sort of dialogue and discourse, we can agree on some things that are sort of going to be at least necessary <laughs> for this to actually be pulled off. I also think there's a huge onboarding issue with all of this too, right? Like when did tablets become super popular? When Apple brought it to market, right? And made them cool. And they had the app store with all these apps that you can use on them. Who went to market before that? I think it was HP and like Palm Pilot had tablets as well. And people were like, what the hell is this? I could just use the laptop. This is trash. And then Apple came out with the tablet and then they're like, oh, this is the future. This is so cool to be able to walk into a meeting room and be able to have this keyboard connected to this thing and do all that. So I feel like it's a big onboarding adoption and I guess you could say branding issue that goes along with NFTs as well and just connecting all the dots there for players because yeah there's really a fundamental misunderstanding of this as well for example that article that got posted right someone right clicking and downloading all of the Board Ape Yacht Club images and it's like I own all the Board Ape Yacht Club NFTs now and it's like ah you don't. And you're totally missing the point here. So gamers being who they are, who at the core, I think a lot of folks, and I'm guilty of this as well, of just being massive trolls to these types of situations. And so they're one, it's just too complex to understand for a majority of people. Two, they don't care to understand it. And three, they're just trying to troll. And so there's a onboarding education challenge with all of this is as well, where even listening to Marcel's podcast, he was like, the NFT is not just the art, it's the code and the beauty of the code behind it that makes me able to appreciate it. And tell that to the 16-year-old kid that's playing Call of Duty, right? <laughs> like, oh no, but you got to look at the code of this <laughs> NFT. They're just like, F that. I just want to look cool and be in style while I'm just like popping off in these battle royale games. And that's the thing, you're always going to have this segment of folks that don't appreciate the full value of it. And so it's really just highlighting what is cool, the marketable aspects, for lack of a better word, to position it to the audience and get them bought in. Because everybody now is just speculators that are speculating on value and then people that are really, really into the tech, right? But you're missing the mass market. Yeah. What have y'all seen, if anything, that is cool that Web3 enables? Yes. Realistically, for me, it is the community. One of my conclusions is what Web3 needs to lean on is that community mobilization. This follows with crypto, I noticed. There's always cognitive dissonance. I remember back in 2016, 2017, before that first ICO boom, you were telling people about crypto. This is after Bitcoin. Even with Bitcoin, people who invested in Bitcoin early and then they shit on Web3 and Ethereum and they're like Bitcoin maximalists. I think the reason that occurs is there is a bit of cognitive dissonance because at some point they realized that they could have been on the Ethereum bandwagon, but they chose not to because they were strong opponents of Bitcoin. So they dismissed that. That's just within that early stage of crypto. And then within that early stage of crypto, there's people that you were telling about crypto and they decided not to invest in crypto. And then they become vested in like saying, oh, crypto is a scam. And they are constantly designing new narratives to be anti-crypto. And I think with NFTs, the same patterns emerge. People who are into crypto may not buy NFTs and think NFTs are scams. And people who buy NFTs might think projects within the NFTs are scams. But there's a constant battle within these even communities to onboard new users. But once users do get onboarded, they become converted and they become evangelists. And I think that is this powerful feature that doesn't exist in traditional gaming. It kind of exists in fan clubs like, or fan communities. I've always seen people who do fan art and fan content 
for their favorite games. And I'm always astounded by the amount of effort that people are just willing to do and put in for the goodness of their hearts. Like they're just so passionate about it and they just want to do it. And it's so incredible what content gets produced from just that passion about a game or an IP or something. But then when you layer in the financial aspect and the ownership aspect, it just cranks that up to like 11. Everyone becomes super invested financially, but not necessarily financially, but just through that ownership sake, they want to promote and everyone turns into this marketing <laughs> guru. So that's something that I feel like any game needs to lean into, right? Because that's something that currently doesn't really get monetized by the developers. And I think of there being an aggregate like value pie, right? And some part of it is being captured by the developers. Some part of it is just being captured by the community just because it exists. And then there's another part that's captured by like ancillary services like Twitch and Discord and all the other sort of YouTube and streamers. So that collective pie right now is defined by sort of what technology we have and how the flow of value gets shifted around, right? I think that there is definitely a case where that pie grows a lot. And so the pie grows and the amount that you shared between everyone also increases. Now, the question is, is the share of the slice for the developer going to necessarily grow? And that's not a foregone conclusion. It might not grow for the developers, right? The community pie might grow and the overall pie might not grow, but the developers might need to even concede some of their share to the community. I can see that being a trade-off, right, in some ways, but I don't know if we have the gaming models that allow that to occur. That's one of the things I want to see. How do we involve the community more? How do we leverage that interest and passion and that evangelist mentality to actually derive, drive more viral channels of growth? But that's one thing. But the second thing that I would like to see or want to see is genuinely new forms of gaming experiences being designed. And I think in some way, I'm going to mention scholarships as a new thing because prior to sort of Axie and how they have the scholarship system, you didn't hear about these organic economic institutions arise. And some part of it is because it's so costly to play Axie that they needed to arise. But now, paradoxically, now when you talk about Web3 Gaming, people automatically assume those institutions are going to exist. And it's like, is scholarships now inherent to Web3 Gaming? Do people just lump them together because that doesn't necessarily need to be lumped together. And so other things that just emerge by the pure basis that this is a new form of gaming and what kind of dynamics those things produce. So yeah, I don't know, David, if you found any other projects that you thought it was really interesting. Right now, I think we're still in that skeuomorphic phase, right? Where we take existing gaming and we just cryptify it. Games like those NFTs like Loot, which sort of promise that you can take these components and make your own games out of it were promising, but I haven't really seen that killer app, which was like, oh, this was a no-brainer. Everyone should have thought of this in the beginning. Like, I haven't seen the battle royale of crypto games emerge yet, where everyone just sees that instantly goes, hey, that's a good idea. We're all going to start making clones of that, right? Hey, Harry, real quick, can you explain what scholarships are for those, those of us that aren't familiar? Yes. With how Axie works, it's basically... When I was trying to test out Axie, I found that the cost of playing to be prohibitive. And I thought, how is it possible that you need to spend like $900 to even demo this game and try it out? But that's actually, you needed a team of three Axies to play. And at the time, the cheapest Axie was $300. So I was like, I can't play this game. And so it's crazy. Yeah. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> and so 
scholarships emerge as a organic means for players to actually play the game. And so the owners of these axes, they effectively rent it out to players who can't afford it. And as a result, there's all these arrangements that they have. And basically how it works is if you don't have the money to afford the axes outright, you borrow the axes from someone and you agree to share in the proceeds of what you earn playing the game. So you earn this thing called SLP and through the course of playing the game, you accumulate this and you share it with the owner. And it kind of produces this hyper-capitalistic kind of environment where you almost have a capital class where they own the means of production and then you have workers who are working for them. And I don't know, I kind of view that a bit pessimistically. I think there is a lot of misaligned incentives between the two classes. Like one class is vested to keep axes out of reach from the other class so that they can sort of keep profiting off their assets and they need to in order for their own investments to make sensible ROIs. I also think that dynamic creates negative economic outcomes. It can lead to inflation because you've got all these people using the axes and the people are not buying the axes necessarily or they're just playing the game to earn some minimum income but not really using it to promote the game itself, I guess, or play the game for its own sake. So there's definitely some negative externalities. But one of the interesting things is like a lot of Web3 games now support scholarship systems as part of the gameplay. So they make it easy for you to set up scholarships to get you started. Yeah, get started. So the designer and developer actually explicitly designs for the existence of these scholarships within the game. And then Mm -hmm. I think one of the things is our game is meant to be free to play, right? And so... People continuously ask like, oh, is there going to be scholarships? going to be scholarships? Because kind of people, they see play to earn or play and earn, whatever you want to label it, Web3 Gaming and scholarships as being like intrinsically connected. And I'm saying they're not really intrinsically connected. They emerge as a response to something different. And they emerge as a response to the game being inaccessible and you not being able to get frictionless onboarding into the game. Right? You had to pay a $900 cost. And that's why that emerged. So yeah, anyways, sometimes... It's hard to fight against some of these notions because people, they recognize these elements as defining a certain genre. And I just wonder, is it too early to change that? Can we still change some of those things? And what are the other elements that we're going to need to include in order to define what Web3 Gaming is about? So this is becoming almost, I don't want to say standardized, but it's becoming very common in a trend is what it sounds like. Yes, I feel so. So Axies basically showed a model that really worked, the play-to-earn gaming, and everyone is now just copying it or using that model. So how you brought up community and you brought up scholarships as Web3 gaming components. I know, David, you spent a lot of time researching Web3 and how it can fit into AAA gaming. You've researched Ubisoft and what they've done wrong. And I know one of the things that you felt was really important that AAA gaming is missing is the community, right? Can you just go into more about your research into Web3 and what you're seeing that is similar or not similar from AAA gaming? Yeah, I'm going to answer that question. I'm just going to take a note on it, but I do want to riff off a couple of things as well that are semi-related off of what Howie had mentioned. So going back to Axie really quick in terms of, I guess there are two different hats that I always wear slash think of in working in PM in games. One is from the gamer perspective, and then one is from the business model perspective. So from the economy side of things, what Axis put together and has done and been able to grow is pretty cool, right? Like how he said, they created this derivative offshoot of 
this business model, for lack of a better word, with scholarships and all this stuff that needed to be created in order to continue to sustain the community. And it's worked out. Someone identified a problem. And because this game was built on the blockchain, they devised a way to kind of solve this problem in terms of entrance and helped people to get into the game via these scholarships and the yield guilds. So from a economy standpoint, it's cool. And then I think about it from the gamer perspective, and this just feels bad to me. I'm going to use like a very bad analogy, but games are supposed to be fun. And now this has turned gaming into a means to an end. It's cool that people can actually make money off of playing video games, right? Like how it's cool that people can generate income off of streaming on Twitch. But now, for some folks, you are turning gaming as a means to an end, which is good and bad. And I say bad because a part of me thinks that gaming should be fun. It should be something that you do at the end of the day to relax. It shouldn't be a thing that you feel like you need to grind eight hours a day on in order to support your family. That's great, but that takes the fun out of gaming now. A part of me like dies inside thinking about it from that perspective, right? Of, wow, the whole part of this game is to level up your axes and then fight and try to be the best amongst a bunch of people. You're taking all of that out of it because you can basically farm that workout to someone else and say, hey, all of you all, I'm just going to buy these for a very steep price because I have a deep pocket and a lot of money to spend. But you guys do all the busy work and I just want to like play at the end or just like own these axes. So for me, I'm struggling a bit and that's where the disconnect happens for me is the why this is popular outside of the fact that you can make money off of this and make a lucrative amount of money doing this. And this is the article that all of us have read. Like The fact that people in the Philippines were able to make more money doing this and put food on the table is awesome. But again, it just feels bad that they're not doing it because this is fun. They're doing it because they need to put money on the table. So that's two perspectives on that aspect of Axie from the economy standpoint that I find fascinating and interesting. But then a bit of me on the gaming side just like dies because it seems like they turn something into a job and are not taking advantage of maybe a too strong of a word, but man, you're just like farming out the work and reaping the benefits at the top. Another thing before I dive into community, another point that Howie said is as this grows, right, does that mean the developer share of the revenue grows as well? TBD. One thing and perspective to look at this where I thought this was kind of cool as well is if you are bringing the community along for this entire ride and they are reaping a majority of the benefits, this may mean that developers can now build in a more scrappy way where you're essentially guess you can call it like outsourcing the work to the community to get a bulk of the features done. So your top line revenue might not be the most that it used to be, but your operating income, your net might be better. Your bottom line might be better because you're not expending as many resources to stand up everything, right? And not saying that what the community builds is necessarily going to be like bulletproof and going to generate revenue because I've been in instances as well where we've done like market research to world's end on things. And then when we launch a thing, it doesn't work, right? We've all seen the case studies about Crystal Pepsi and New Coke and all these other things that had a ton of research poured into them and didn't do so hot in the marketing. It had to be yanked out. Gaming is no different. It happens a lot. And I feel like that still may even happen. But at least in this case, I guess it's spreading the risk. And then there is potential for your operating income to maybe be better just because you don't have to keep as heavy of a balance sheet of assets and just expenses that you're running to keep a a game going. Going back to community, this is, I think, the most exciting thing for me. And what this is allowing people to do is basically you are turning people, again, riffing off of something that Howie said, 
everybody wants to be a game designer. Everybody thinks they can make games. You're basically giving them the opportunity to do that and feel a part of the game. So you're essentially activating this like large audience of people as brand ambassadors and shilling or truly into it, whatever it may be, they're going to pump the game up no matter what, because they are a part of the experience now, right? Which is cool. So giving the community a skin in the game in order to do that is awesome. Having them create content for you is awesome. And I haven't yet been a part of uh, in browsing. There's too much going on in a lot of these discords. So I, I haven't really experienced like what good versus bad looks like. But I will say this with AAA gaming and where there is a divergence here sometimes or can be, at least on the AAA side, is on the AAA side, you have your lead game designers, design directors, and these folks that are trying to craft a particular experience. We already have enough trouble as it is building alignment within a smaller group. Imagine now opening this up to thousands and thousands of people in the community to build and steer a story. You're trying to build a character in a specific way, tell a story in a specific way, and it could be potentially hard to do. Andrew mentioned this on a previous podcast as well, where he mentioned, yeah, the idea of total democracy on these things is always good, but things always just coalesce around a select few that can really move the needle, drive decisions, and get things done. And this is where the community can be, what's the right word? Not distraction, but kind of like a distraction from one, the story that is truly being told in the first place or the design director of the original game wants to tell and two, just making decisions in a more swift way to move things forward. I also, as it relates back to community, have this just huge fear of toxic people and them doing shitty things in the game that ruin the experience for everybody. Let's just use a hypothetical example. There's a bunch of NFT projects that are doing this, but basically people buying plots of land in the metaverse to create things, right? What if a bunch of Nazis buy 50% of the land and just stand up these big towers with like Nazi symbols on them. Yeah, everybody can just move and you can move all the content, but that's a crap ton of work. And who's going to want to do that to move into another place? And what's to stop those people from doing the exact same thing again? I don't want to say there's a lot of hateful people. There's a lot of good in the world as well, but you always have these people that are always trying to troll and ruin it for everybody else, right? We've even had a hacker on the Apex side who was freaking terrible and was just getting kicks out of hacking our servers and DDoSing people and crashing their games. So making the game unplayable for people has zero benefit for him, yet he does it to just screw with our players and screw with us. And it's crazy, right? And so to say that we can have this metaverse, the community is going to be positive and all this, I'm skeptical because people do shitty stuff like that for no monetary gain. And I just feel like people will, will do it in the metaverse as well, where it's like, oh, we want to be hateful. So like, I'm going to buy this plot of land and then stand up something that's super offensive. So that's the part I'm always skeptical about as well, is just toxicity bleeding over and how that truly gets policed without a centralized source that is going to drop the hammer, right? And it could be solved with the community as well, right? Giving the community what we call in gaming, like the ban hammer, in order to just ban people from these experiences. But then that's taking away from the decentralization. There's a lot of stuff going on, but I think that's the one thing I always go back to is being able to continue to craft the right experience and tell the right story. How do we prevent toxicity from happening? And how do you keep a project moving along when you have this giant base that's always going to have like differing opinions on which direction that they want to go? So I have a question. I didn't catch the entire conversation last time with David, but I know that you were exploring, for example, like DAOs and how that could potentially be an avenue of enabling that type of community engagement, right? And then I'm curious because you've been gaming for a long time. So 
How have you seen so some of the negative parts of having more of a centralized or maybe even because as a larger AAA developing company, you have to also think about more so like revenue stream and make sure you guys are profitable and all that. And so what are some of the things that you think can be changed through Web3 and through potentially, say, the implementation of a DAO or other things that you think could be done to make things better in developing the next generation of games? Yeah, this kind of answers your question, but not exactly in terms of developing. When you say developing games in this particular context in my head, I'm thinking about like what we were talking about earlier, like what does Web3 gaming, native gaming on Web3 and what is the revolutionary new way to play looks like? I don't have any thoughts on that, but specifically with an area in which I think it would actually be cool and where having like a DAO or community participation in something would be neat is segmented some world building or character building around particular cosmetics or things like that. And I'll give you an example that I, I'm actually happy to talk about on the, the Apex side. We very much strive and try super hard to build an inclusive world that includes a lot of different ethnicities, cultures, backgrounds, and stuff like that. So that all Apex players, no matter what background you come from, you have a character that you can resonate with. In this process, everybody always assumes an ill intent, right? And they think that we are stereotyping characters when we're, that's not what we're really trying to do. They see things as cultural appropriation. When we've had people on the back end that are like consultants on that side to help us through these things. And there's always people that are crying foul when these things happen, right? So I'm wondering if in a DAO and with the community actually participating in these things and helping you build this diverse cast of, of characters, you do get potentially more of like a, let's just call it natural segmentation, different cultures within these groups that are then going to feed in into those particular characters and really make sure that it stays true to the culture and their background. I mean, let's be honest with some of this. Let's just say we have like a Malaysian character in the game. We do have Malaysian people at the studio, but these are probably like a handful of people at most, one or two people. And then we have like a cultural um, sensitivity consultant that we work with as well on a lot of this stuff. And usually we branch out and do interviews and do all these things, but it's always limited in scope, right? The amount of people that we can talk to and touch base with in order to make decisions on how to portray a character, what they should be wearing and all of that. So maybe in the world of Web3 and this being decentralized, you have these small communities, kind of like how you have like the mutant apes and the cheetah apes and all that stuff, right? Where people are like, oh, this character is of this ethnicity. I want to lean into building this character out more. I'm going to gravitate towards helping to build out more stuff for this character. And then it could potentially come off. We don't have that problem anymore. These things coming off as ill intent or cultural appropriation. And people see within these DAOs and segmented groups like, oh, you have a group of Malaysians building this Malaysian character. You have these Japanese people that have, have gotten together and they're building the background and the skins for this particular character. Because we just can't catch it all. And, and I just feel like players are always going to shit on us about that, about, oh, this isn't, did you guys not talk to any Korean people when you did this emote? This is super offensive. And it's like, actually we did. And it was a Korean person on our team that made this emote. And so it's always just hard because people don't give us the benefit of the doubt. And maybe like the DeFi, decentralized gaming world, they will give the community the benefit of the doubt. A lot of the things that you're mentioning are in-game skins or in-app purchases, right? And I wanted to touch upon microtransactions and our NFTs, microtransactions or our NFTs in our purchases? Yeah, I've raised this question as well, which is NFTs as they're currently visualized in the current generation of Web3 games, are they just a cynical means of selling more microtransactions and increasing the average in-app purchase? 
that players are expected to expand. And I think the answer for most current games that you see on the market is yes. And you got to understand something about how these games are currently being developed. Because NFT gaming was the thing that's taken off in the last like six to 12 months, I would say. No more than 12, maybe more like six months. Six months is not enough time for you to build a game from scratch, right? So what happened is a lot of publishers out there have seen this NFT hype wave. They've raised a bunch of money, whether from VCs or from token listings. And they've just gone on an acquisition spree of games that have already been developed and or shelved because they were deemed unviable or whatever. And they've just added an NFT layer to it. And basically, they've just replaced the existing free-to-play monetization system with an NFT-based one. And so that's why you look around and you're quite cynical about what type of the games that are being released or are being planned because they weren't built from the ground up with the intention of it being like Web3 native. They were Web2 games that were, were reskinned with NFTs. It could succeed. Don't get me wrong. It could be that people are willing to spend more now that they're NFTs because they know they can sell it onwards and recover some of those costs. That could be viable just as a like the natural progression of IAPs, right? But it's not a revolution, right? It's not Web3 in my definition, right? It's Web 2.5. And so if that's all NFTs and crypto are going to contribute to gaming, then I would say, yeah, okay, that's not the vision that I set out to create, right? If the game we're making is only that, then I would say we've failed. I totally agree with that. I think that using NFTs as in-app purchases right now is where everybody goes to. Let's just call it like a lazy solution. And it's like, yeah, no shit. That this is obvious, but where can we potentially go deeper? And I think that deeper layer is just something that is super hard to figure out, at least with me and my team. One, we're always tasked with thinking about the business, and but also balancing that with the player experience. But I haven't really seen any super compelling ways that it's used like in the design space. We were shooting some ideas around, right? I threw some ideas at will, but one of the things that I put out there for thought and curious to hear the group's thoughts on this as well is for those that don't know what RPing is, RPing is role-playing. Role-playing has been super big and probably one of the things that has kept GTA 5 relevant for a super long time. So people prop up these servers and then they'll give people these hyper-specific roles and you have to play that role. So you can be a stripper and then like every time you come in contact with someone, you got to act like a stripper and be like, oh, hey, baby, you want to dance, blah, 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 blah. And then like there's people that are cops, there's people that are crooks, and there are a bunch of people doing mundane stuff for the most part, right? But they're playing these roles and acting out these characters. And it's super, super popular in terms of streaming and people watching it. So there's a lot of people that are streaming these like specific roles and then people are totally into it. What if, for example, in the Web3 world, and maybe this is even still like a Web 2.0, Five, when you join an MMO, you roll a random character with a bunch of random traits and you have a job that you need to do. And after that, you are airdropped your next set of things. So let's just say it's like an MMORPG. You mint your NFT. It's revealed. You are a merchant. Let's just say someone else is a warrior. Me as a merchant, I sell stuff to warriors. So I get airdropped a bunch of starting goods and I need to, in this world that has like blank space, let's just say it's like bear like Minecraft builds up my merchant store. I got to go talk to the people that are like farmers and like the masonry people to like gather the bricks to like build my thing. I got to find the warriors and find a way to get the warriors to come buy my stuff, right? And you get people role-playing in this giant world that they're making as they go with everybody having kind of like their own initiatives and things that they have to do. So 
yeah, I don't know if that is like a web 2.5 thing as well, but I'm just trying to think of how you make this more meaningful to the player and to the people involved. And that's where I haven't really seen anything interesting. Everything is just, yeah, using NFTs as like an IAP. The other way also just to throw out really quickly that we've thought about this is at least in the early stages, the mantra that I've created for myself is really NFTs and gaming isn't about revenue. It's about retention. So we got to really think about how you use this as a way to pull the community more into your ecosystem and make them feel a part of the ride to get them to play the game longer, not necessarily making money off of them. Because really, the money-making aspect of it is for the community member. So what else can you offer to the player in terms of utility as a part of these NFTs minus the cosmetics? Is there any other benefit that they're getting? Another way to think of these things is just like a loyalty program. So what is like the Amex black card experience for the NFT owner? Do they get fast pass directly to customer service representatives when they're having issues with the game? Do they get early access to try all the stuff that we're working on as well? What other utility can you offer people through the NFTs that you're selling? And I think there's just much to be figured out there. As mentioned last time as well, I think the thing that I'm racking my brain on is what real problem is this solving that can't be solved through another mechanism that already exists in the world? And to like go back to the utility aspect and what I just said, oh, what if we gave NFT owners early access to the new content so that they could create YouTube videos and tell people about it? We already do that. And the people that are likely to buy these NFTs are probably the same exact people that want their early access to create content for their YouTube channels. So we're just making it more complicated by having a thing now to verify, right? Versus talking to these people on Discord and inviting them into the studio, what we used to do before COVID, to get them to capture game footage on their hard drives and stuff like that. So what's that forced? It's just a hard, hard question to figure out and solve for. Howie, have you been able to answer this while you guys have been working on your game or have been doing research? Yeah, that's, that's the central thing of what I think about when we are designing new economic features of the game. I always ask myself, what about this makes it Web3? Like, And always when we have our design conversations, it kind of runs parallel. Like, There's one set of conversations we have, which is, oh, this game is a free-to-play game. And so as a free-to-play game, the design principles are very well understood. And that's always sort of like taken as granted, like, oh, we're going to be able to create at least a minimum a fun free-to-play experience for players. The question is inevitably, well, how do we integrate the Web3 aspect of it that either enhance it or change it somehow, right? And so at the end of the day, we have ideas about how it's going to work. And I don't know if I can talk about those ideas publicly. And that's actually one of the challenges of designing Web3 games because... A lot of the launch model so far is like, like basically you sell NFTs early on with the promise that your game is going to be great and it's going to be awesome. People buy the pre-sale because of the NFTs, they inherently are able to be traded on NFT markets. And then you also do a token listing down the track and then you got like live pricing on exchange, right? And so because that's the, been the launch model, one of the problems is actually anything that it's hard for you to be very transparent with what you're trying to design because people are trading on those on the value of those items already, right? And you may have plans in, in your roadmap that require certain preconditions to exist. Like, oh, the market needs to be vibrant or liquid for us to sort of launch this new feature or this new aspect. And so because you've got constant live pricing on your decisions, you can't develop in a way that maybe traditional developers do, right? Which is like, 
you know, talk about announcement and get solicit community feedback. Because the feedback the community will give first is either buying or selling your NFTs. And sometimes you don't want that to happen because sometimes you generally just want to get feedback without it actually affecting the game. But as it currently stands, everything you do as say can affect the game already, right? And so that adds to the complexity, but it's also a bit of an advantage if you can actually leverage the price discovery feature of the community, right? Like in the sense that like you get really quick and you're very acute to community sentiment, right? And that itself is a double-edged sword, right? Because sometimes community sentiment doesn't really reflect what it is to make a fun game. Plenty of times I've been playing plenty of games where the community demanded some feature and then it got implemented and the community hated it <laughs> and it didn't get used or didn't get, no, no one played it. So it's one of the complexities I will note and that makes me a little bit cautious to be very transparent at this stage with what we have in store. But I completely agree with what David says, where basically we're very focused on community and the features that we have need to promote retention, right? And one of the things that could exist, I think, in this phase of gaming is basically you will be able to roll your community forward in different directions that are not targeted to a specific sort of genre of game, right? You're already seeing this occur with Riot and what they've done with League of Legends. They've got the like Netflix media adaptation. They've got their core League of Legends games. They're releasing like a fighting game. I think this talks about an MMO. And so this type of universe of titles that shaped around some shared IP, that's a natural extension for these NFT games, right? Because, you know, like for those games, the only connection t- between the player and that universe is in the IP, in the hero and whatever the law that resonates with. You can strengthen that if you add the NFT element, because then you have ownership over that thing. And sort of you're more, you're going to be so much more vested. Like you're going to see your hero on TV, for example. That would be cool, right? Cool in a way that is, oh, this is the hero I play versus this is the hero that I own, right? So I think that type of enhanced engagement, enhanced vested emotional connection into the game is something that, yeah, we will have to harness in Web3. And it's something that's slightly different from what we see in Web2. The second thing that I want to follow up with what they were saying, which is the idea of the scrappy development, right? If you bring in the community in the right way, I think also, yes, you can be more scrappy. You can sort of say that you're part of the development journey. This all depends on how these governance and voting systems are implemented. If those things are implemented in an inclusive way, gives the community a real sense of agency. Like it's not just a nominal, ah, like vote on like some irrelevant aspect of the game, but they have some agency into shaping the future of this game. Then I think that's powerful because then that also creates this interesting dynamic where the developer and the community play some sort of game, right? Where they're trying, like the developer wants some, maybe some outcome to occur. The community might want some outcome to occur. There's going to be pros and cons for these options. And maybe there's going to be some developer to community metagame interaction that's going to be built into all this, right? And I think that could be some interesting dynamics that emerges, just like how David was saying, like the, the example he gave where streaming RP, it's a no pixel, right? That's the model that you're talking about, right? And yeah, I think all these things could be possible, but I don't see any games doing it successfully so far. And that's other reason is we're just so early in this process. And it could be in all likelihood that like whatever the next 
killer app that comes out of this is completely left field, right? And it's, it's something revolutionary. Yeah. I mean, I, I find this really fascinating because I feel like we obviously have two people from different perspectives, right? I feel like in a way, David's kind of representing more of like the traditional gaming platform where there's almost like a more of like a legacy to it where you're trying to include everybody that was already previously perhaps not in it for a more specific reason. It seems like when we talk about Web3 and games that are built in the Web3 mindset, it almost always has, maybe for certain specific examples, we don't want to necessarily know that this is on the blockchain or that's not important. But for a large majority, that is the main differentiator. The way that Howie's thinking about developing something from the ground up is going to be very different, potentially, from like how David might be looking at it, right? Because your communities are two very different groups of people. Where David's like, we have to bring our original core group along as well as we add new features. But for Howie, it's almost like, well, we can just scrap all that. We don't have that baggage in a way. In some ways, it's easier. It's also stressful because you're trying to come up with something that didn't exist before, right? <laughs> exactly. It's not like gaming is this new thing that we are going to find some organic new audience to bring in. Anyone who's interested in gaming is already a gamer, right? It kind of goes back to what we we're talking about, mainstream gaming, right? I'm a little bit bearish about the current AAA mainstream audience adopting sort of NFTs in its present form, right? And for, for the reasons that we've talked so far, because cynically, it feels not that much different from what they have in it already. And there's nothing really additional that it's adding, right? For the current mainstream AAA audience. Now, there is another audience, which is the mobile gaming audience that I feel is a little bit more receptive to this. And part of the reason they could be a little bit more receptive to it is because all mobile games are already free to play. They're already super heavily monetized, right? But also, if you want to design a successful Web3 mobile game, all that blockchain has to be obfuscated. You need to simplify that process as much as possible because you just can't expect a mobile user as part of their user experience to be like downloading wallets and messing around with seed phases and transferring money into their wallets and buying crypto from exchanges. If that's what you're expecting in order for it to work, it's not going to work, right? And so the assumption with mobile is those pain points have to the maximum extent already been solved, right? And so if you go in with that assumption that those pain points have to that maximum amount being solved, then I think that mobile community is they're a bit more receptive to it, right? And then there is a third perhaps community out there or audience out there that perhaps, I don't know, maybe they're in the developing world. Maybe they haven't really experienced AAA gaming because the platforms required to run AAA gaming is just out of their abilities to purchase that. They only know mobile gaming, but also they're super receptive to sort of Web3 play and earn because they can pay their wages or pay their food on the table. That's a new market that is currently being targeted, I guess. But I don't know if that market itself is big enough to sustain the ambitions that the current developers are trying to do. So, so there has to be some new organic market that we are either able to capture, convert some of the existing market or find a sufficiently big new market that we can sort of realize our, our dreams and ambitions. Howie talked a lot about mobile gaming and I would actually want David to give us a little bit of gaming university, right? Because David, you've been part of that new wave of mobile gaming in terms of doing live ops and in-game purchases and free-to-play, right? And there's this big move from AAA gaming going from box games to 
mobile gaming and live ops and free-to-play gaming, and we're starting to see this new transition. Can you talk to us about that traditional box gaming? Because there is some legacy around the gamers and the companies that build them, and that transition within culture in order to move towards the free-to-play gaming. And then what would it require, even if possible, to kind of move again to Web3 type stuff? It's tough to go back to Lee's question before segueing into that one. And just to make a point on this, the innovation and who really cracks Web3 is going to be, for lack of a better word, the nobody or the people that are totally disengaged, not attached to any of the baggage that the AAA companies hold. Because everybody thinks that all the AAA companies are the devil, period, right? There's no way of talking around that. Everybody is always going to assume that. That's why nobody in AAA gaming figured out mobile, figured out free-to-play for the longest time. Look at who the big players in mobile were. Who the hell knew who King was or Supercell? Now they're like mainstays in the gaming industry with free-to-play, right? But they were nobodies. They were just ambitious people with big ideas that decided to go all in and crack this nut and figure it out. And they, they did. And then a lot of these companies were just acquired by other people, right, to absorb that talent because it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. And in particular with gaming as well, that's just a, a huge issue. So as far as moving people from one way of gaming to another, it's hard to say this definitively, but what I really think happened here was, yeah, there was a lot of just new gamers that emerged and a lot of people with wild ideas in terms of the types of games that they wanted to make. And no one believed in those ideas or didn't think they were really games and didn't think they were lucrative enough to generate revenue. So that's why people went and made all these other types of games that ended up being hyper-engaging and create this whole entire market. So since the first gaming all of us knew was box product gaming, going back to the original question, that's what everybody's reference point and anchor point is. It always will be, no matter what. Maybe it's different for like the newer generation growing up, but at least for like, I guess you can say the old guard and the older people that are now in charge of a lot of these companies, their perspective of gaming is this romanticism of what it was when they were children and they got their first Atari or Nintendo and they got this game and they played that game for hundreds of hours and they only played one price for it. That was what everybody defines gaming as. So when free-to-play came along and it was like, hey, you can pay as you go and it's optional to buy and, and all this stuff, it was like blasphemous, right? And people were like, oh, these are just money. Or It's always one of many different arguments. One that you hear from folks is like mobile gaming isn't real gaming because the games have no depth to them. Two, they're just money grabs that prey on creating these like habitual loops of people and they more so prey on FOMO and other things like that as opposed to actually like being fun. Like, I don't know if you guys remember when like your crops used to die and farm villain and all these like farm simulator games, right? And it's like, oh, your shit died. You should come back next time on time to get them or pay us a dollar right now. We'll revive all of it for you. And so for your old school gamer, right? That feels really, and I think it's like scummy as well. But yeah, all of the older gamers have a very specific way of thinking about games. And it was really the next generation or thinkers that were never indoctrinated into that way of thinking or are able to like disconnect from that romanticism of, uh, and definition of what gaming means to them, they were able to help usher in the free-to-play era. And honestly, a lot of what I've done, right, is I've done my round across all these different companies because all the live off stuff that was going on in free-to-play was just fascinating to me. So it's something that I learned, leaned into, and I've basically gone from like company to company teaching the same values, solving the same problems just in different ways, right? And I've always run up against this exact problem. 
that I've just mentioned here is just everybody has like a very old way. Majority of people have a very specific way of thinking about gaming. So, and changing that is just hard. So it's really like a new generation that needs to not necessarily pick up the mantle because these both coexist in the same world, right? And you have blockbusters on the free-to-play side. You have blockbusters on the AAA side, and it's still fine. But we've only recently got to a place where free-to-play gaming exists in a lucrative way, I guess, from a monetary perspective and mainstream perspective on consoles and PCs, right? How long did it take for Call of Duty to go free-to-play with Warzone? Pretty damn long time. (laughs) And they didn't even do it while I was there, right? So... It took a while for that to happen. And how long did it take for Call of Duty to go free-to-play on mobile and then be a, a hit there? Pretty damn long time as well. So as far as the transition into Web3 and how people are going to get there, I think it just starts with all the companies that are leaning into it now and a lot of failed projects to come across the line before that magic is captured there. It's going to be tough, man. I think with free-to-play gaming, it was a little more... Not necessarily the value was easy to communicate to the player, but with free-to-play gaming, there's no barrier to entry, right? And so that was the whole entire allure of all of it and why people jumped in, at least a giant audience jumped in, was because there was no strings attached. You can jump in, play a game, you like it, you continue playing, you don't like it, you jump out. And it just so happened that a lot of people fell into this, I really like this game and I'm going to continue to throw down money. And it ballooned, right? So... Struggling with how that education, that onboarding and figuring out the when and the why behind it, it happens just because it's such an obtuse problem with so many innovations, I guess you can say, that haven't been created yet that really drive me over to this area. And yeah, the cross segment between the crypto person and gamers, I want to say is like somewhat small, at least with respect to AAA gaming. So it's a tough one. I know that that wasn't like a super, super direct answer for you, Will, but I think it's just challenging. Isn't this, that thought already wrapped in assumptions about the games, kind of like what you were talking about previously with the folks that are CEOs, let's say at AAA companies now, because what if that's part of the joy of the game is it's the folks that already understand crypto. And let's say the game you build is right to explore existing crypto and you put the sense of curiosity or exploration or leveling up into a world that's already available. And maybe it's not an issue. I say that just because y'all inspired me with what you're saying. Like, and I was like, oh, I don't know shit about games. I could throw something together (laughs) from an ideation standpoint. Right. And like the web three stuff already exists. It's there. So if you're on it, there's gamification already available around exploring it, finding something new, putting it together with somebody else that other games would have to create, right? Because the content is actually there. So just throwing that idea out there in question, I don't even know if it's a question, maybe just a comment. Isn't that what Wolf Game is doing? They're using all these crypto terminology and, oh yeah, you can stake this to do that and blah. Like, honestly, when Will sent me the Wolf Game stuff and I looked into it, I was like, this shit, one, does not sound fun. Two, is super confusing, just like everything else in crypto. And three, I do not see the allure in doing this at all. Let's unpack that. Because the first thing I thought of when you talk was like a calculator game. I forget which calculator games, but you were just trying to like farm something. So from what I saw with Wolf Game, you're just farming sheep and then they put math on top of it like DeFi on top of it yeah i'll let will talk more but like that's got to be fun for people that are into playing markets right yeah for people who are already into DeFi, when you, if you gamify DeFi, then it's more fun i guess yeah, yeah. DeFi gaming it's only recently come on to my radar and this could be some new 
thing that is only possible with crypto and not possible with traditional gaming. And it turns out to be super lucrative and super fun. And maybe it's something that like we need to explore. But but yeah, it's also changes so rapidly. So I'm just right now in like knowledge acquisition mode and trying to understand it. I haven't heard of a wolf game, so I'm going to go check it out after this. <laughs> I think about the parallels of, because we're all old enough where iPhone came out in like 2008 around 2008, 2009, right? And the first iPhone 1 really sucked. It wasn't until like maybe iPhone 3 that you could actually play games. And the games that came out were so crappy. They were basically literally like, you tap on a button, you wait for an hour, 24 hours, and then you tap another button. And that was the game. And people were still playing, they're collecting like, it's like Mafia Wars or something like that. And they're so shitty, but they were still playing. And a lot of people... Yeah, like to Dee's point, David's point, they didn't think they were games, right? Because they were so basic and the user experience really sucked. But the fact that it was on a phone and there was limitations on the phone, meaning that there's limitations in real estate, limitation on, limitations on processing power, it changed the way that gaming was thought of and worked, right? And so because it was everything was simplified, the games became more simple. It became more accessible to different types of people. And the mechanics were different because people aren't willing to spend $100, $60 on a game mobile, right? They want to download it and play it first. That's when free-to-play gaming started, right? Yeah. To add to that, the thing, though, is that with free-to-play gaming, with mobile gaming, not necessarily solving a problem, but adapting to a specific pattern that people had. So why are mobile gaming sessions shorter? is because people are using this to fill the microbordisms in their life. As they're going up an elevator and they're waiting for the elevator to get there, they're popping in for a quick session. So you don't have any time more than to collect your money and then wait another hour because you're not sitting there staring at the timer. Go down in a lot of these idle games. And idle games like AFK Arena is another one that's gotten really big, right? So these fit a specific play pattern or just a pattern of consumption of people in the real world, and they're using it to fill that space and time, right? Like on mobile, I always say you have to give the player the option to sit there and play for 10 hours if they want to, but you also have to make sure that they can make meaningful progression in the game, like in a sub three-minute experience and give them a ton of stuff to do. So I think that was the thing that mobile gaming had solved was with, with smartphones being invented, so much more of our lives now was on the move, right? And we could be separated from our desk and our computers and all that. And we have the power of our computers in our hands to do all these things. And so naturally, people are way more. They have like time they need to fill as they're waiting for a doctor appointment, whatever it may be. And they are filling that time by playing these games. So where it failed, right? Look at every game, every mobile game that has like a massively long play session length. And you'll see that none of those games really do well. They usually flounder. Like the big statement everybody was trying to make, right? Of like, oh, blah, is like AAA gaming on mobile. And it's like, that's not what people really want. If I'm trying to play like a AAA game, I'm going to plop down in front of my couch and want to be immersed in this world, like The Witcher, right? I don't want to sit and play on this like tiny device and have to sit here for like, I only have five minutes to play. I can't fight this boss in Dark Souls that's going to take me an hour because he's going to fucking kill me like a hundred times. And so not only was it the tech catching up and all that stuff, but I feel like it just attracted a new audience and then it solved kind of a problem that people had in terms of what do I do in between walking to my next class, things like that. And that's what is unclear to me right now is like the problem Web3 is solving, who the audience is and what play pattern you're going to have to adapt to. Because it seems like right now, all of Web3 stuff is just fueled 
by the owner of the item being able to make money. And that's the allure of it, right? They're like, oh, I can do this thing and make money, so I want to do it. But it's not anything just like outside of that. So it sounds like where the mobile gaming became mobile gaming because there are certain properties that the platform allowed and limited, right? Yep. Howie, what are you seeing in Web3 that is possibly different from the other platforms that it limits and allows that might change the way that Web3 gaming is? Yeah, so we've touched on this subject in the course of this conversation. And like the commonly cited reasons for, for why Web3 is sort of different in a platform perspective is this idea of digital provenance, right? But they would also touch on it. Like no one cares if I've owned the NFT and then you buy it, but they do would care if LeBron owned it, right? Like there is that concept. Right now, we're probably, what we're going to see is we're going to see these professional gaming organizations start really entering in the space. We set up a partnership with NRG Gaming, who's a esport outfit. And sort of basically they sold some of their heroes out and the sale did quite well. And so as you see the level of engagement that these organizations could have with the game itself will increase because like, oh, if some streamer or professional player, this is their hero, this is their NFT and you're using it, that's something that's a little bit different from just having like a a skin or something like that. So once again, that sense of ownership is different. Now, is that going to change the way we game? Probably not. Will it increase monetization? Yes, probably. But If you're asking for things that are only possible with Web3 that are not possible with Web2, the answer must be in the immutable permanent nature of those assets on the blockchain, right? And how those smart contracts get developed and gamified in future. It would be amazing if someone was able to take a dead project and make a game around it. That would just in an instant demonstrate a use case that was not possible. Like, I guess in traditional gaming, you'd have like games that are dead and then there'd be a modding community that perpetuates the game forward, right? Something like that occurring with these NFT assets would be really cool to see, I think. I think we're still too early to actually have a game that has that kind of community following that can demonstrate that. Another thing that I think would be cool to see is once again, this idea of governance and voting. Like, I want to see a game created by a DAO. <laughs> like, I, don't, I haven't so far hasn't arisen, but yeah, I want to see the voting process and all that, everything there gamified in a way and see what kind of outcome that produces. And maybe that's the game. The game is you developing a, a game <laughs> in some way, shape or form. So I think on the creative side, there will be a lot of innovation there with how a community is able to mobilize the content producers to produce things. But as for the actual gameplay itself, I would say it's presently all up for exploration. The DeFi GameFi concepts are are radically new. Are they fun? I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical. Are they going to convert to mainstream? Again, skeptical, right? But I would say that there is a path whereby free-to-play converts to Web3 completely. And that could be demonstrated pretty soon. Or I would say free-to-play converts to Web2.5. I don't know. It could also not occur. Um, whether Web3 gaming materializes will all depend on the present crop of developers. These developers who have been developing Web3 games from the ground up, right, to accommodate for those unique features of the blockchain. And yeah, time will tell. I think this year we will test the proposition that mainstream adoption of Web3. All right. If it doesn't happen this year or like next year, I don't think it's happening. There's so much capital there. There's so much money 
in there. There's so many different projects out there that surely one out of all these projects will demonstrate it in a very compelling manner. And I hope it's our game, but if it's another one, there's going to be a halo effect that's going to move it from right now, just theory and white papers and bloody teaser videos into something that's actually like a long-standing property or IP. And if it ever transitions to that kind of metaverse scale, multi-IP franchise, that's when it's one, I guess. But we probably won't see that stage until many years down the track. But I think this year we will be testing that, the question of whether there will be mainstream adoption of crypto gaming. Because I also think that if it was only the subset of people between crypto and gaming that were playing these games, then it might as well be dead. So when we talk about the metaverse, there's two different versions of the metaverse, right? There's the Web3 metaverse where you can take any digital item from one world to another world, and that's the decentralized metaverse. And then there's the metaverse, there's the Zuckerberg metaverse, which is this dystopian, centralized metaverse where he even co-opted the name Meta. So people believe that the metaverse is Facebook, right? And so we have this centralized world where Facebook is trying to build, even if they were trying to build a more decentralized, community-owned world because they have shareholders, because they're making money, because they want to hold attention. It's almost like they have that innovator's dilemma where they will eat their own revenue and eat their own profit. And at least in the short term, nobody wants that. Shareholders don't want that. The CEO can't have that, right? Do we feel like AAA gaming, it also has that innovator's dilemma where they're making so much money right now it's really hard to let go of that potential revenue to give that revenue back to the community, David? That is an easy one to answer. The answer is yes. I think that is the problem with a lot of public companies. But outside of that, I also wanted to comment just on the open metaverse that you talked about where, oh, I could take this game and take this thing and use it anywhere and how that is like an absolute like fucked idea because you can't have all these different games and universes that people are building and then have things that are brought into those universes from other, like, how are you going to account for that, right? If you are bringing your Assassin's Creed character to go into my game, like it doesn't, one, make sense in our world. Two, I have no understanding of how to like interpret that code in order to make the output of this Assassin's Creed character to look exactly the same. So not like uh, there's the obvious of this doesn't make sense and people want to keep things closed in their ecosystems, but it just doesn't make sense in terms of everybody then being forced to figure out solutions for other people's tech problems. And then you have these engineers arguing and stuff with each other, right? Like, oh, this person's code is all fucked up and it's like done hell shitty and inefficient. That's why we got to do all this extra work to interpret this in our game. And this is BS or just disagreement and what should be in the game and what should not be in the game. And how do you filter that out, right? And although everybody sees Zuckerberg's vision of the metaverse as like dystopian and not what they want, I feel like it's really on them, man. They got to fucking push back and let people know, again, this is like not about revenue. It's about retention. It's about captivating users, giving them a platform that they can call their own in the digital space. And through some unification, some centralization, you can then build on that platform, right? Hypothetical idea is like a metaverse or uh, on Horizon, they could kind of like how Apple and Google and all these folks have like standardization in terms of how you have to develop apps on their platform. They can work with a bunch of publishers to make sure that we are standardizing our way of building out content to work in their universe on their avatars as well. 
So it's a thing about its scale as well, right? And although people are like, oh, we don't want centralization and I want to do everything everywhere all the time, there's not a lot of practicality to it. And there are going to be, in my opinion, select winners that have built out their worlds and then people adopting those in order to get scale. Like how many um, hardware devices have failed because they can't bring software onto their devices, right? Like uh, last time I think we talked about like the Windows 8 phone, Nokia is dead now, BlackBerry is dead. All these people are dead. Why? It's not because they didn't have the hardware capability. It's because no one wanted to develop content for their platform, manage another submission process, debug another device, all for what, right? For like 10 more people that are going to be playing your thing. It just like from a monetary perspective and even like a scale engagement perspective doesn't make sense. And here's where this gets, I guess, it's in conflict with what Web3 stands for as well as like there's a limited nature around it about a select few people getting a select few things. And mainstream media is all about the masses adopting and being able to do that thing or experience that thing. So they're kind of in direct conflict with each other. So I feel like this is going to end up like the app store carrier or mobile device market where things are going to gravitate towards a couple of big winners. And then you're going to have people leveraging these metaverse platforms and then getting their content in it that way. That way there's like at least some standardization. But yeah, people don't want Facebook's meta's interpretation of what it is, but it's just honestly just what makes sense from a developer upkeep standpoint, unless you're going to have all these community people solving problems for you and and working 24-7 to get these things done and interpreted in the games, which again, that could happen as well. But yeah, I guess I may be jaded from working in the industry for so long, but I always approach things from that like scaling and audience problem because that's the first thing that you look at, right? When you're venturing off into any new, one of the first things that you look at is the TAM, the total addressable market. And if it's not there, if someone's trying to pitch me on developing content for their platform or their protocol with their stuff, and it's like, yeah, we have access to a thousand people. Dude, get the hell out of here. (laughs) The AAA companies are used to servicing hundreds of millions of people on a monthly, yearly basis, right? And all of this is like, you're trying to scale me back to getting my game to a thousand people. Especially on the design side too, as an artist, right? You want all these people to experience what you're creating, not just five people to experience what you're creating. I was thinking about some ideas as well as how we was talking and then just came to the conclusion in my head that this would never work. But what if you developed a full game that was an NFT? I was thinking about it like books, like you used to buy books or buy comics and stuff like that, right? And, And when you're done reading them and you got the full utility, you got the story, whatever it is, you let a friend borrow it. Like what if you had games that were 10,000 NFTs? And then you had people just transfer them to each other, right? Like, oh, you want to play this award-winning game made by in partnership between George R.R. Martin and Christopher Nolan in this amazing experience? Well, there's only 10,000 copies, so you can only play it through here. But then the intent of this is for mass consumption, not limited consumption. And so it's just hard to strike that balance, right? These people want everybody to see their work. They don't want a limited amount of people to see their work. And maybe some people do, I don't know, but... I guess I've always just been a part of these big mainstream games, right? Where our whole entire, what we wanted to become or what we wanted to do was always take out the leader in the industry. Like Apex, we know who the top dogs are in VR. We want to be better than them. We want to engage more players and attract more people to our game. We don't want to just be like, eh, we're okay being like the number 15 battle royale. That's not an aspiration. And I think that's where a lot of just values, intent, purpose, like are misaligned and things are hard to get to work. At least with Axie Infinity, it sounds like they do have that problem, right? Because they want the axes to be valuable. 
they limit the number of axes. And what that ends up doing is it limits the players. And then that's why you have this whole scholarship thing to basically enter in more players. And the only way that everyone's making money is because it's kind of almost like a pyramid scheme, right? And basically, in order to have their existing players make more money, then they have to bring in more players through this scholarship system. And that's where you get the problems because you have a scarce world with Web3 and ownership and you're trying to onboard as many people as possible. Yeah. The way I see it with a lot of these Web3 games is there's two ways you can try to build a sustainable game, right? Method one is you have constant player growth, right? Which is not sustainable, sorry. But it's what the Axie model is predicated on. Like we'll be onboarding new players, new players, new players, and then that will keep our prices in check, it'll keep our economy balanced, and then you'll drive the, the play-to-earn loops that exist. There is another method I feel that exists uh, that's been shown to be true in some games, which is you get your players to spend a lot of money in the game, right? And you don't need a lot of players and you don't need a growing player base, right? But if players are willing to play the game for whatever reason that they determine it's fun, and, and the game that I'm thinking about is Zed Run, which is that horse racing NFT gambling game, right? That is also capable of producing a sustainable economy with a relatively small player base. Explain the Zed Run dynamics first before you get into the topic. Yeah, look, uh, Zed Run, I'm not entirely across it, but basically the idea is you get these horses, these horses have traits and stats and attributes. These stats and attributes provided different chances of winning a race. And then basically people, I think, gamble on the outcomes of races. And that's basically, it's like a self-contained gambling. There's more. So on top of that, The spending, what they do is, so what you can do is you also breed horses. Just they copy horse breeding mechanics, which is if the person with the female horse pays the person with the guy horse, right? The stud fee. But the benefit is they get to keep the horse and continue to sell it or race it. And then, yes, there's also racing mechanics and there's betting there. And then they're also putting in mechanics to actually potentially force you to like house and like feed your horses. And so I think there's another, but they're basically mimicking fully racing, breeding, and then potentially raising. This is the first NFT that Shabbat. And then we were like, holy shit, this is crazy. So like, if you're really into horses, it's a pretty amazing game, right? Like you're getting paid to like do something that you like really enjoy. Yeah. But the audience of players who are interested in horse racing and interested in NFTs is quite small. And so I think they probably hit like, I don't know their total market. But the game is still sustainable and the economy is pretty functional, right? And so, yeah, like the third method, which is yet to be proven, is a not a large, not hyper-growing community that's also able to have a sustainable economy that like sort of can, can fund those play-to-earn loops without asset prices crashing, without it being seeming like a pyramid scheme. That's the thesis that needs to be proven this year. Without that being proven, I don't see these lofty valuations being justified, right? Because if you look at some of these crypto gaming titles, their market capitalization is in the billions, right? And that's got to be a huge game in order for those valuations to be justified. Like there's no middle ground. It's like, it's either mainstream or it's dead. And imagine with Axie, just going back to that and why it's hard for AAA to succeed in this place and it really needs to be someone else. Imagine if Axie Infinity was Pokemon. 
And they're like, yo, to play this new Pokemon game, you're going to have to pay $900 to get these three eggs because you need to have a team of at least three Pokemon in order to play this game. People would lose their freaking minds and like riot and burn houses down. It would just be chaos, right, around the world if this happened because of all that nostalgia and that attachment and the precedent that's been set, not only with the games, but the cartoons and everything else, right? You can have kids crying to their parents, parents bitching and all this stuff. And this is what happened to us on Skylanders, right? Man, there are just fans ripping us all the time because they're like, oh, the game's too expensive and you guys make all these toys and my kids always want all the toys and this is not sustainable for me to spend thousands of dollars every year on the $100 game plus the 40 toys that you release every year. And yeah, if Pokemon was to do what Axie did, holy shit, like the world would end because it would be like, what is it, BTS Army or the Beyonce Army? Just like coming after everybody. So are we trapped of the goals? and making a ton of money. Like we just talked about all the different economic models, right? And to be fair, if you're raising that much money, you are beholden to make that much money. Yep. But isn't there a big market for the kind of more indie games that five developers can make that they just want the world to see or 10 developers, right? And it's also not as much cost to then run that game. Totally, yeah. I think for that scene and more of like your grassroots developers and communities that want to see specific things, I've been part of many uh, green light meetings while I've been at EA and Activision and at Blizzard where games are killed because what ends up happening, games are typically killed, I guess, for one of many reasons, but two big ones out there are, one, the game is just not fun, so it gets killed. Two is there's not an addressable market for the game that is being built. So with these smaller communities, it potentially does make the economics make sense to stand up a very, very hyper a specific experience, right? The reason that we see outside of representation being an issue in gaming, which I hope continues to go in the direction of getting fixed, but the reason we see a lot of similar characters also is because everybody has this idea of what the hero should look like or what a heroine should look like and what will sell, right? And not everything is going to sell in an equal way. And that's why a lot of times games get shot down or characters are changed from one thing to another is because it's not mass market enough. So I think what would be actually really, really cool to see now that you bring this up too, is just more of this type of stuff happening where you see games with a lot of representation because you have these communities kind of boosting, putting skin in the game to get these things made, right? Mm, yeah. So Valorant, first time ever, their new latest season has a Filipino agent that they just launched. Can any of you tell me the last time you saw Filipino representation in a game, right? I don't think anybody can name it. But how many times can you tell me where we've seen in a game or even young adult books, a woman with a bow, right? And so there are just these figures that please, folks, that's not like an attack of like, we have enough women representation. It's just an example as an FYI. But there's certain tropes that people are into. There are certain ones that aren't. And hopefully with Web3 as well, and just how the funding and financing of these games are going about, we see this like ushering in of an era that's able to tell a lot of different stories from different ethnic backgrounds. And these people are putting their money in the game to see them made. So developers are making their money back. And then we get to see these really rad experiences out there. So that's like something that hasn't crossed my mind yet until you asked the question, Andrew, but I think it'd be like a super cool thing and neat thing to see. I think we are starting to see inklings of possible games just from PFPs, for example, right? Like Crypto Coven, we had them on before. They're not a game exactly yet or possibly never a game, 
But what they've done is they basically built a community that really cares about the story, the lore, the art. Their characters are very diverse. And they basically got community engagement in basically loving the characters. And then they raised money by selling these NFTs, basically, right? And now they have at least the funding and the community to build something around that. Whereas like initial games, when you see Kickstarters, that is a version of a Kickstarter, right? Where people are raising money, but instead of a Kickstarter where they're just putting money in and they don't care about it afterwards, you actually are seeing brand ambassadors. Every single Crypto Coven owner is a fucking brand ambassador. They're on Twitter, they're representing them, they're on Slack. So everyone is seeing these crypto covens, right? And so now you have this whole entire group of marketing team, like a marketing team that you're not paying for to basically get your brand out there. You have the money and the resources to fund whatever project that you want to build. And the team is really small. They basically, there's like four or five people, there's five high witches, the crypto coven, and they've raised enough money where they can keep going on that project and they have a big community. That's a possibility of indie gaming, right? In the beginning of something possible that we could be seeing with indie gaming. The funny way to think about it as well, too, I'm going back on the Alpha Girl Discord that I'm on as well since I own an Alpha Girl. There's like a recruiting channel and then people are just volunteering their time as well. Like people from different backgrounds and different expertise or I can do this thing or I want to be a social media manager. I've done social media management for XYZ company. And if you think about it, it's kind of funny. When people are buying the NFT, there some people are basically saying, let me pay you this money in order for me to do this thing for you for free when they're volunteering their time. So yeah, like Kickstarter, it's not only just taking money, right? Like people are giving you the money in order to be able to help you with your project and do something for you for free because it goes back to potentially pumping the value of the the project, right? And yeah, the Crypto Coven, which is experience. I've been calling it an experience because I don't know what it is right now, but I'm super curious to see how all that pans out too. Yeah, I mean, I am probably part of the unofficial Crypto Coven employee. My experience being part of the Crypto Coven project has made me actually quite bullish and alleviated some of the concerns I've had. Because if an NFT PFP project is that inherently fun to be part of and try to develop and promote, how can not adding a gamification layer on top of that not just make it even better, right? And that's, I think, the promise that it holds, right? A super mobilized, community that is super engaged and willing to contribute to the project without necessary monetary reward. Let's let's disassociate the value of the PFP from it. In a way, crypto and NFTs are inherently connected with the tradability of it. But take away that and just look at what the community is able to do organically. With that kind of interest and that kind of enthusiasm, how can the gaming not succeed? Enormous. Like the form of the gaming is not proven, but some gamified version of these type of PFP dynamics. It's already really gamified in itself, but I'm just super keen. It's probably going to be an indie developer that does something radical out there that just blows people's minds and gets hundreds of millions of downloads. I um, just hope whoever's out there quietly developing and doing that thing is just going to really knock it out of the park. Random question for everybody, since all of you are well more, way more versed in Web3 stuff than I am. Is Web3 gaming and DeFi or decentralized NFT stuff, is it only a hindrance when it comes to processing power? Or is there any way that this can become a force to reckon with in terms of amping up 
processing power for people to get things done. Because the technology is just writing data in a decentralized way, right? So it's more of, this is a record-keeping tool for posterity as opposed to anything that can increase processing power for people. Because I was trying to think of it in terms of like a cloud gaming sense as well, but I don't think that's the right application here. I personally think, I don't know if this answers your question, but it speeds up anything to do with digital ownership and then potentially physical ownership. And then because there's a contract behind it, it means you can get in and out of contracts very smoothly. You can automate rewards smoothly. You can automate royalties very smoothly. So it's more to me about digital ownership and then what you can do with that digital ownership. But then it doesn't really speed it up though, right? Because let's say a game like Apex Legends, for example. I was answering in the wider, right? So imagine if you put a mortgage on DeFi slash the blockchain, right? You could have it done in a minute. So it's more like backend operational work. So instead of you basically bring a, well, I I guess it's kind of like eBay in that sense then, right? Where eBay has a set of rules in order for you to list on their platform. All the payouts, all the fees that are taken out, everything is done in an automated way. It's just that the smart contracts and everything that is being done potentially allows you to do it in a more efficient but complicated way at the same time. Like you could specify more rules that you want to put in place and it's like an open market good as opposed to a single platform that you're operating on. Yeah, all those things. All that can be done in a centralized way, right? Like all of that stuff can be done in a centralized way. But I think the difference is that instead of only selling on one version of eBay, you can sell it on all versions of eBay, right? Because it's it's not the eBay server that you're dealing with. It's the blockchain that's open and immutable that anybody can plug into. And I think that's the difference. It does help save time on, I guess, depending on how you want to structure your contracts and set up your folks that you're working with. Like Roblox's example, I'll use Roblox as an example. And they bring on people to create goods for their game, but they need to basically screen all the people that are creating goods for them. And then I don't know if they have separate business deals with all of them and and how that aspect works, but I do know they have a curated experience where only select vendors are able to create content. So this essentially may speed up like that contract backend side of things, right? Where you have a bulletproof digital way of getting someone signed up and good to go. And you're not having to have lawyers review back and forth and redline things and negotiate stuff like, yo, this is like non-negotiable. It's what it is. Is you want to get started. This is what you're signing up for. And then the processing behind that too of like, oh, instead of someone having to pull the data on this thing and understand how much revenue was generated and all that stuff and cut a check. It's just like when the transaction is happening for the good, it's automatically being deposited over to the owner of the NFT based on the rules that are in the smart contract. Yeah, exactly. And then there's lots of other pieces that come with it, just transparency for any transaction. So I think it just makes certain things a lot faster. Yeah. My experience, the NFT ecosystem, I'm pretty impressed by OpenSea. It's pretty usable and it's pretty liquid. And any NFT project just seems to plug into that seamlessly. It's not like got a code for it. It's just as long as you have it there, anyone can make use of that marketplace, right? I don't know if it's literally that simple. It's probably some things I need to go in the background. But in addition to that, like the analytics sort of things, third-party analytics tools that people have developed to check rarity of traits and things like that, that's pretty impressive because when you have a game, those things are just going to exist for it, right? Provided that it's supported, you're going to have, as a developer, you don't have to develop those things. They're already there for you to use. 
And so the more that ecosystem develops, the more kind of these of these services that cater for these smart contracts, then the more powerful or the easier it is to create new properties within that ecosystem. So that could be, a, we could see a bloom in indie development on these blockchain games. It would be cheaper to do, maybe quicker to experiment and trade on. So repeating that back, is it basically like you could build a system which encouraged all the big games with reach to have a same development engine, but it encourages then indie developers to create new objects that then would fit and work within the world. But you could make that smooth in a way that almost, right, it costs money to bring somebody on. You could reduce the cost to bring someone on so much so that it's worth it to just let them be more creative. And then you could source more ideas and then put them into games. Assuming no ill intent, right? Yeah, right. Also, I feel like it's not a game thing, it's like humanity, right? Yep. Meaning a lot of humanity is good and then there's definitely parts that are just terrible. Yeah. Thank you so much, David and Howie, for coming. Hopefully you guys can continue to come on more as we learn more about NFTs and Web3 and think more about this. But this was an amazing conversation. I'm glad we have that. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks for making it to the end of the episode. You can find show notes, links, and contact info for us and our guests at our website, willandlee.show. We love feedback, so please feel free to drop us a note with any thoughts or suggestions. Lastly, if you like what you heard, we'd really appreciate you adding ratings to our episodes. Thanks for listening. Until next time.